the most cringing videos to watch ever. This is a complete digression. <laughs> are powerlifting, weightlifting things gone wrong? Oh. This guy doing 882-pound squat. Oh. It does not go well. And so, like, the whole well? time I'm watching. <laughs> no, he can't, right? So the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so bad. This is going to be so bad. And then, of course, he, like, blows out his knees. Oh. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today we've got another one of our compression shorts episode, um, which I should say we've beforehand we were talking about all the topics and it may not turn into a compression shorts but maybe a compression pants episode um if it's long <laughs> enough so we'll see how that goes but I like it. we've got a whole we've got a whole bunch of things to talk about and yeah i'm i'm pretty excited about this one cuz i've made some pretty big lifestyle changes and we'll see well i'm using myself as kind of a dummy um emphasis on the dummy part but uh We'll, we'll see what happens with all these changes I'm making to my body. Like now is a good time to try things because I don't have any races coming up imminently. So it's it's a good time to experiment and see what happens with my fitness. Yeah. Um, I, it's something I think that uh, is on the minds of a lot of athletes. There's uh, there's obviously a lot of folks who are high profile, um, uh, you know, and they're, whether they are, you know, uh, plant only or vegetarian or you know any anywhere else on that on that particular dietary spectrum um and it's uh it's always a a conversation that's interesting you've got very different opinions and sometimes very um heated <laughs> or or strong opinions on one side or the other so it's always a you know it's a conversation that that has to be i think handled delicately but you know people sharing their experiences under that umbrella and saying that, you know, this is my experience and this is why I do this and here's how I feel about it. I think that's always uh, a worthwhile conversation to be had. Yeah, the the whole change that I made here was, um, it was through, I guess, peer pressure of a friend who had uh, done a bunch of reading on it. And he's always been thoughtful about what he eats and, and trying to maintain a good diet and uh, just eat healthy foods. And he decided to go mostly plant-based and he convinced me that I should give it a try. And I've been working on it for probably about two, two and a half months now. Cool. And yeah, it's uh, it's been going pretty well, but uh, we can get into some of my experiences with that. But some of the other topics we've got on the go here, I guess we've got some listener feedback, which is awesome to have. I always love when people write in and take the time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, it's something that we really do, as Andrew said, we really do appreciate it. And uh, regardless of whether or not you're, uh, you know, kind of a formal financial supporter of the podcast, uh, if you've got something to say, um, be it, you know, something supportive or something that we got wrong, um, we, we want to hear about it, especially if it's something we got wrong, because we, you know, look, we, we, we try to make this show as factual as, as we, we can. And we try to be clear when, um, we're expressing an opinion rather than a fact. Um, but sometimes we, you know, we get things wrong and we, we love it when you guys call us out on it and, uh, we will, you know, dive into the research if we need to go back and look, look again at what we said, um, and uh, and make those necessary corrections if we feel that they are warranted. 
All right. So where would you like to start then? Um, why don't we do, look, well, you started talking about your change in diet. So why don't we start there? I think it's a, sure. it's a good place to, to kick things off. So I'd started to detail some of the reason that I had changed. Um, so having this peer pressure and, uh, a friend who suggested it might not be a bad idea. And the more I looked into it, um, there's, there's always going to be countering opinions. You're always going to find two sides of the coin, but there are a lot of people who are in support of it and thinking that uh, if it done properly, a plant-based diet can can be enough for um, for the needs of an athletic career, um, you know, something fairly modest like I do. But uh, nonetheless, it, it can be enough to sustain you as long as you do it properly. Sure. So I figured, um, why not give this a try right now? Because like I said before, there's no races coming up. If I kind of go wonky with my fitness or do something wrong, I've got time to recover from it. And when else would I really have that opportunity? Because in a normal season, if you're, if the first race is in May uh, and the last race is in November or something like that, it doesn't leave you a lot of recovery time or correction time in between. But with all the races being canceled with COVID, you know, at least this is something for me to look at and something to, to keep me interested in training still. That's an excellent point that you make that, you know, big changes like this, like changing, changing your diet. And I mean, this can be done gradually too, and there's so many different ways to slice it. Um, But it could have fairly profound changes. And because of the way our bodies work, because of, you know, one of the, there's, there's there's a big theory of the case that the whole point of the brain is to maintain homeostasis. Um, And, you know, so, so when we, when we change things, in our diet, for example, sometimes those changes, the, the, the downstream effects of those changes don't manifest for a while. So the fact that you're taking kind of the long view approach, I think makes, makes a ton of sense. But the question I have for you, Andrew, is, uh, um, you know, other than peer pressure, which is, you know, it's a a big (laughs) deal in triathlon, that's for sure. What, what were some of your motivating factors for, for, you know, for doing this other than the, you know, the scientific inquiry part, which is totally fun. Well, yeah, like treating myself as a science experiment, that's always something I enjoy doing. Totally. And it's neat to see that. But I think there are some other components of it as well. Um, like I've always I've always eaten meat. It's never been an ethical concern for me. But actually, more and more, I've started to think about it. And maybe, maybe I don't fully put myself on the side of I'm not going to eat meat because of the treatment of animals. I'm not necessarily saying that I embrace that, but, uh, that wasn't the driving motivation, but it is kind of a nice side benefit, sure. um, that you can do this, uh, with a, a good conscience. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. I think that, uh, I am starting to embrace that more and more and it, a whole other side topic is <laughs> I've noticed as I've gotten older, my views have shifted to be a lot more, I guess, liberal, um, where I think a lot of people tend to get more conservative as they get yeah, older. Yeah. You're going the, you're going um, the opposite direction. Yeah, going upstream. That's the way I like it. I, yeah, I'm with you, man. So I've uh, I've really started to embrace some of these ideas, thinking, okay, like if you know, if as a result of me changing my diet or anyone else, then animals are treated a little bit better. That's something that I can feel good about. And I'm not going to be the preachy person who's trying to tell everyone else that what they're doing is wrong, because first of all, nobody likes those people. Um, and it's, it's everyone's choice. Like there, there are reasons that you can make this choice. And I think just allowing people to find out for themselves, whether or not they, whether or not it fits for them is, is key. So this, this is something that, um, the ethical side didn't really drive me to make this decision, but it certainly didn't hurt it. Um, knowing that this is kind of a side benefit from it. So that was one component. The other one is looking at, uh, just the, 
environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that we're realizing much more is that the the impact of raising meat-eating animals uh, or sorry, raising meat eating, eating animals. Uh, we are the meat worse, eating but, animals. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got a farm of bears that we harvest. <laughs> uh, raising animals for meat is is what I meant. But uh, the the actual um, biomass efficiency, this is quite low. Yep. Because if you think all of the cows that you're raising to eat, they will have to eat some very large amount of grass and grain to to grow and to become viable for food. So the amount of essentially raw carbon that goes into it uh, or raw energy that goes into raising an animal like this for several years, um, it becomes quite large. So even if you don't don't consider things like the the methane production from cows things like that mm-hmm. if you're looking at just the amount of greenery or food that they need to eat uh if people were to eat that instead um you could feed quite a large number more people than that equivalent amount of meat would so um so it's a really interesting point there and there's all the other agricultural stuff that goes along with it where um all the emissions from processing and uh, harvesting the the grains and the the grasses that are needed for for the cows, so there's quite a quite a long chain of things that go into uh, meat production. And I'm not saying that uh, all vegetable production is completely um, I don't want to use the word ethical, but like uh, efficient, because there's definitely a lot of wasted wasted produce and probably more chemicals are used than we need to, but um, for the most part, it, it is a more efficient way, like a higher biomass efficiency. For sure, um, doing it this way. Yeah, if you look at um, if you look at the energy required to produce the calories that you end up consuming as a human, it is absolutely you know I've heard as as high as an order of magnitude more efficient to eat. Yeah, you know the the primary consumers of solar energy rather than the secondary consumers. Yeah, I, I think I think you're spot on there. I think, you know, you, you could probably, some people can make the case that, you know, there's some areas where there's grazing land where you couldn't grow crops. And so, you know, if you're going to use that land for agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, I mean, it's, it's not a straightforward, you know, kind of math equation, but it's absolute, I, I mean, I personally agree with you entirely that there, it's, it's far, far less efficient from a from an energy per calorie perspective. So there was a book I had read probably 10 or 12 years ago. Um, I think it was Jared Diamond, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, where he was talking about why certain cultures succeeded and other ones didn't. And one of the big points he brings up is that uh, when you look at raising uh, animals for 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 meat, um, if you were to raise carnivores, basically each step in that chain is kind of a one to 2% biomass efficiency. So you would take almost the magnitude. Yeah. Yeah. So now this is rough numbers. It could be one to 10%, who knows, but, uh, and it could be highly variable depending on where you are. But um, if you're looking at raising herbivores for food, then you're using maybe a hundred to at the high end, 10 times as much uh, energy to, to do that. And if you want to raise carnivores and you're feeding the carnivores, those herbivores, then you have the same kind of conversion where sure. you've got another 1%. So that one's like four orders of magnitude off of what uh, um, what a, a plant-based diet would, 
require in terms of energy consumption. So, but I mean, that one's pretty niche. Like there's not many people, if any, who eat uh, purely carnivores. Cause I can't even think of any. Well, see a lot of seafood, I imagine like a lot of, a lot of the uh, fish okay. are, are like, you know, tuna, for example, is a obviously carnivorous fish. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Personally, I couldn't agree more with you on, uh, on your, you know, I like, as you say, your, your reasons are your own and obviously respect there, but I, I happen to share them, um, for ourselves. We, so me and my family, we eat very little meat where, we have. I won't go into our rules of, of eating, but we've definitely drastically cut back on on animal sources as well. I'm certainly not a vegetarian, but much I consume much less than I used to. But um, I want to get into how you feel. What's uh, what are the effects, uh, and specifically, how do you feel when you're when you're training? So it's actually been quite an interesting journey. Um, so early on, I noticed that, um, and this is what I was hoping was, uh, my, my power actually started to go up and I was feeling oh, really? stronger and better. Um, so that was, that was really encouraging, um, just to see this. Um, now there've been a lot of, a lot of stuff going on with, with work and outside things. So it's, it's been hard to get that kind of isolated comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the last couple of weeks, um, what I think was happening is I was eating, well, in, in a quest to do this, I've cut out a lot of other sources of bad calories. So a lot of like breads and things like that, um, which they were definitely contributing a lot, not necessarily that they weren't plant-based, but it was just, um, a lot of calories that I didn't need to consume. So as a result, I was actually losing a lot of weight. I didn't realize it until I stepped on a scale. Um, but I think, uh, well, yeah, it was getting a little bit extreme maybe, and it was completely not on purpose. Um, and I know people have no sympathy when I say I'm losing weight without trying, but, uh, it is, it is a good, like, it's a good exercise to see, um, that you will drop this weight if you cut out the kind of the garbage food in your diet, um, and how quickly it can happen too. Right. It's just a matter of being very disciplined about what you, what you pick. So, uh, keeping that stuff out of the house is really the best way to do it. Cause then when you have a craving, you've got to go all the way to the <laughs> store, which is much harder than going all the way to the pantry. So it, uh, yeah. Controlling your environment is the best way to change your habits. I think that's like, that's been talked about quite a bit in the, you know, in the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the self-help world for lack of a better phrase. But yeah, that's, that's excellent advice for sure. So initially I went from, I think I was sitting at about 78 kilograms and I went to 73 in about three or four weeks. That is, that's quite Um, rapid. Yeah, that's it probably faster than it should have been. And part of that was, I just didn't even realize it was happening. Mm. Um, and this is as my power was going up. So, I mean, it was fantastic for my (laughs) power to weight ratio, but, uh, it was, maybe not sustainable. Well, definitely not sustainable at that rate. So, uh, this was pointed out to me that I was looking a little bit thin and then I weighed myself cause I don't regularly do that. And I said, Oh, <laughs> Oh shit, got to start eating more. And, and I have since made that change, but it's only been fairly recently. Um, so I don't really have anything to report from that, but I do know that the last week or two, um, where I hadn't been eating or hadn't been trying to eat more. I did feel a little bit lethargic, but I thought it was just other other things going on in my life that were affecting that. But um, I think it was it was largely the just the lack of calories. Mm-hmm. So just running in an energy deficit the whole time. Well, one thing I'll say too is yeah, to your point of energy deficit is if you're if you're switching to a plant based diet, 
you have to consume a lot more food to get the same number of calories, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the energy density program of food, I mean, obviously the most energy dense macronutrient is fat, which is pretty straightforward. And, you know, it's more than twice, it has more than twice the energy density program of, of protein or carbohydrate. And so you're, mm-hmm. when you're, when you're eating meat, a lot of it contains obviously protein, but also quite a bit of fat, which is great for you. You know, nothing against fat in, in the right kind of doses and, uh, and, and quality, I suppose. Um, but if you're, if you're cutting out meat, you get, unless you're, you know, starting to eat jars of peanut butter, you're, you know, you're, you're not getting the same kind of fat content as you would in the past. And also you're getting more fiber, which helps fill you up and kind of gives you that sense of satiety. And, um, it gives you, um, and, and you have to eat just, yeah, like I said, you have to eat a lot more, a much higher quantity of food to get the same number of calories. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the big change that I had missed. Um, so maybe I was just feeling the effects of eating cleaner foods, um, less less of these like white breads, things like that, which are delicious, but yes. not necessarily that good for you. Yeah. Um, so getting those out of my diet probably resulted in my power going up a little bit. And then as my body started to literally harvest itself uh, and decrease muscle mass, then I think things were starting to go back down. So I'm just in the throes of recovering from that. But I think <laughs> um, what what I would recommend to anyone doing this is just keep such a close eye on everything when you start. Um, and another thing that was recommended to me was just keeping like a calorie journal um, and tracking that for at least the first couple of weeks until you get into a habit, until you understand what it feels like. Right. Um, and the other thing too, is, uh, some of the supplements like B12, vitamin B12 is one that, uh, vegetarians often have to take, um, just to, to make up for the, the lack of B12 in, in a lot of the foods. It's not that you can't get it in vegetables. It's just, we're used to getting a lot more of it in meats. Um, same with iron. That's just something we've got to be a little bit more conscientious about when, when you're trying to make that change. Totally. So I think that uh, in a couple of weeks, um, I may go in for a blood test just to make sure that I was gonna say, everything yeah. is balanced. Yeah, yep. it's, that, that's a really good idea um, because sometimes you think you may need something where you, you, you really don't. Mm-hmm. And I've heard about that with iron supplements in the past where people think, oh, I'm anemic, I need this. And they go in and get a blood test and it's right in the middle. Yeah. Um, or testosterone, people will think, oh, you know, I'm feeling lethargic or weak, I need more testosterone. Um, and they're not, or like they're, they're not deficient in it. It's, uh, um, so it's, it is interesting. It's, it's been a neat experiment and it's, it's one that, um, I would definitely recommend if you have interest in it to give it a try, but also make sure that in a time like this, when we've got a lot of space between our next event, that's when you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it's been a really interesting journey and if anything, it's given me more interest in cooking and trying new recipes where I was just kind of, I was getting a little bit lazy. I used to enjoy cooking in university, but hadn't really done a lot of from scratch cooking. And this has actually gotten me back into it. So eating a lot more whole foods like this has been, um, I think just an overall, I hate the term, but like kind of a cleanse, right? It's, it's got my system, uh, purged of a lot of the junk foods <laughs> that I would you make me snack on. I'm, I'm looking at a plate of like, it's not white bread; it's sourdough bread. It's whitish with like oh, hummus, so delicious, with so. hummus smeared on it. And I'm like, nah, oh man, now I kind of feel, I feel bad. <laughs> no, but this is great. Um, I love these kind of experiments. I think the only thing that um, you know, I've I've said this at the in the intro. This is one individual's experience with it, uh, and you know, there are there are loads of experiences, but experiments are super fun. 
Uh, anyone, anyone who wants to consider this, I think it's a really, it, I think it's a really good move generally for for the the ethical and environmental reasons that Andrew pointed out, which, like I said, I totally agree with. Um, I would say that the only thing to be prepared for is it's a little bit more work. I mean, but I guess any kind of change is work. Um, it's a little bit more work to get some of those uh, micro and macronutrients because protein's a big one too. Um, for mm-hmm. especially for um, people with more muscle mass generally need more protein. Um, and so sometimes getting enough protein in a vegetarian diet can be a challenge. It's certainly doable, 100%. It just takes a little bit more more forethought and planning than perhaps it would uh, with a, an omnivore diet. And I think that's why those apps to track your calories and your macronutrients are so important just when you're getting started. It's not something you need to maintain for years, but for sure. um, just to make sure in the first couple of weeks or the first couple of months that you're doing everything you need to until you get used to uh, the quantities that you need to consume of certain things. And there's there's certain foods that you can pick that have high iron, high protein, totally. things like that. And it's not it's not like they don't exist in plants. It's just we're used to such a concentrated amount in meat. Um, but it's it it is pretty easy if you choose the right foods to to hit those targets. Agreed. Yeah, it's a it's a process of kind of self re education. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll continue updating as this goes along. And um, yeah, because I'm kind of flexible about it, it does make it a little easier when I go out. And that's one of the challenges too, is if you are going out to a restaurant or going over to a friend's place, um, especially where um, all my friends didn't realize I'd been trying this out. So they'll cook, like I went to a barbecue uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh this friend is a hunter. So it was kind of uh, like I, I ended up having uh, venison sausage. So not too strict in terms of what I'm eating, but uh, mm-hmm. like I'll be flexible on time from time to time. But generally speaking, I try to maintain it as much as I can. It's just uh, on, on occasion, you'll be faced with that position where it's difficult to maintain. Right. Um, cool. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about bike lanes because this is something that's been on my mind a lot. Uh, this is a 180 degree turn here. Oh yeah. Well, sort of, I mean, it's definitely in a, in a, in a different direction. Um, the, so the city of Toronto where I live, of course, has done, uh, an admirable job of adding bike lanes to, and very quickly, um, partially in response to COVID and people's reluctance to take public transit, um, uh, I'm also hoping that it's partially because the folks in government and our local government are, star- are starting to appreciate the value of commuting and, and transiting by bicycle, which is amazing. And I, I do quite a bit of it. Um, and so they've been adding, um, I think something like 40 kilometers worth of bike lanes to our city, which is, is, you know, like the best news possible. Um, and I'm very excited about it. There is a major street that if you're familiar with Toronto, you know, it's called the, it's called the Danforth, um, that w- which is very close to where I live. It's kind of our major artery, uh, east-west artery in the city. And um, they've recently added a whole, well, they've covered most of the street uh, in bike lanes. And um, I hate them. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is like, I, I feel so conflicted in saying this because I'm such a booster of, of cycling transportation, as you may have imagined, obviously as someone who rides a lot. And then also I believe in, you know, cycling as an, as an alternative to, to fossil fuel burning transportation. And it's, I, I'm all for it, but the bike lanes, 
that are on the Danforth right now, and I know this is an unpopular opinion, especially from a cyclist, are are scary as fuck, <laughs> because what what they are. So the way that they're listeners, the way that they're set up is, you know, you'll have the sidewalk which is always there, and then there are now bump outs for um for patios for people to sit outside rather than inside because you know COVID, uh, which is also a really awesome idea. Um, so then there's sidewalk. Sometimes there's a little bit of a bump out for patio. Then there's the bike lane, which is only about, I would say about, um, you know, maybe 1.2, 1.5 meters wide. Uh, I could be wrong. So don't quote me on that. If I get, if I got that wrong, I'm really, really sorry, but it's definitely not very wide. Um, and then there are parked cars and then there's traffic. So, uh, what ends up happening is as you're, first of all, because the lane is narrow, um, if you know, you happen to not want to go as slow as the slowest person in the bike lane, you're stuck until the next, the next intersection to pass them safely, which is, you know, I totally, I, I, I'm willing to eat that no problem because, you know, it's not, it's not a race. You're, you're, people are commuting and I understand that I, I just need to slow down. I'm totally, I'm totally cool with that. Um, what scares me though, is the fact that the cars that are in the, you know, the moving lane, the, the traffic lane cannot or, or do not see cyclists behind the row of parked cars. So when they decide to turn right, they don't look for cyclists. And I've been, I've had more close calls in the last two weeks that these lanes have been up than I've had probably on that street in the last, I don't know, four years that I've lived close to it. Uh, and I used to commute on, on the Danforth all the time. And so, um, I don't know if it's a lack of awareness or a lack of, you know, it, maybe it's just something new for drivers. Um, but it is super, super scary because they're, they're, you know, as a driver and I drive too. So I, 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 I think I get it as a driver, you're used to, you know, you look when you're making a right turn, you're looking for pedestrians who are moving at, you know, five kilometers an hour, you're making sure that there are no cyclists immediately on your right. Um, but you're not used to looking through a lane of parked cars for a cyclist who's going maybe 30 kilometers an hour. Um, and you, you know, you check your, you check that spot and you make the turn. So it's obviously on the motorists to, to fix this, but I've, I'm, <laughs> my life isn't worth it. So I'm, uh, I'm actually not using the lanes. So, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm in the minority here and I'm sure that the, 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 the cycling traffic on Danforth will increase as a result of these lanes, which is, you know, I, maybe the fifth time I'm saying this, which is amazing. Um, but I'm too afraid to use them. And the other thing that ends up happening is that, is that pedestrians use bike lanes as a sidewalk, which I totally get because of distancing, right? Like you want to go around, uh, but then they also don't look, um, you know, they don't look for, for bikes and they kind of are walking in the bike lane. I've had people yell at me to slow down and like, well, I'm below the speed limit and you're in the middle of technically a roadway. So, um, <laughs> I, I don't think I should be slowing down pedestrians. I mean, so, um, yeah, very conflicted feelings about these bike lanes and I'm sorry for that rant rant over. Well, if the cars were yelling at you to slow down, I'd be really impressed with your abilities. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm not laughs> Maybe I should switch to a vegetarian <laughs> diet and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> Improve that, uh, that W per kg a little bit. Yeah, it is a really interesting problem. And I think that one of the issues that anything, any system deals with is when you're increasing capacity where you don't have the systems in place, you don't have the education in place to really support it. Yeah. And something like the the right-hand turns, uh, that's definitely an issue. And I 
don't necessarily have a solution for it, but maybe if parking were restricted closer to an intersection so that the drivers would have a clearer view of, of a cyclist coming up. But then they could also be faced with the, uh, the situation where they slow down for pedestrians who are crossing, then they're about to pull into the, to make the right turn and a cyclist happens to be coming in that time. So there's maybe no direct way to avoid it, but I think everyone, you know, whether or not it's your fault as a cyclist, you're the smaller, the smaller lower yeah. momentum piece here. So you're ultimately responsible for your own safety to some extent. Um, not saying you should be responsible, but it's you. Your choices are the only ones that you can control. Um, Agreed. So it it does kind of suck, and I hate it. But um, yeah, I've I've been in a similar situation on a country road, which this this drive drives me nuts. Uh, where I was riding along, someone passed me, and then immediately hit the brakes and put on the right-hand turn signal and then cut me off. So yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. That bike lanes are no. Yeah. And this was in an 80 kilometer an hour zone. So it's not like, you know, like I was going slower than them. Uh, yes, but they were that close to their turn. So maybe it was just that I was going faster than they expected. And it led to this weird situation, but it does happen. Like drivers need to be a little bit more aware um, but cyclists also need to be prepared for this. Now, I'm not saying that you can be prepared for a car flying past you and slamming on the brakes all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, these kind of situations as a cyclist, even if you're not the one who's legally responsible, you're maybe physically responsible for your own safety. Yeah, totally. You're the one who's going to like get seriously hurt in, the, in, mm-hmm. in an altercation with a, with a car. It's not, it's not even close. No, you're right. I'm just, so for me, I guess the, the, for me, the disappointment is that these bike lanes that, and, and I realize how selfish I sound, but these bike lanes that are, that are so positive and I would never, again, never speak out against them in a, you know, in like get rid of the bike lanes because then I would be like (laughs) fighting for the other side. But, um, like they, you know, this was a, this was a route that's no longer available to me. And I guess that's, that's, that's a very small price to pay. And maybe that's kind of my takeaway for this is that I, I'll go ride on the roads that have either, you know, just bike lanes that are painted on, um, which have their own issues, but at least people can see me, um, or just on roads that have, you know, just free, free traffic. Cause I'm very comfortable riding in traffic. Um, but I'm <laughs> scared to ride in the, on these bike lanes right now. So in your case, cyclists are maybe more dangerous than other cars. <laughs> It's not the cyclists. It's the cars that don't see me that are dangerous oh, okay. that the, and then the cars that can see me. That's the way I would phrase it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I haven't really had to deal with that. Um, so Cochrane does not have a high level of <laughs> of car traffic. Um, and then there's enough bike lanes and it's not really an issue. And I haven't ridden in Calgary enough to really have an opinion on that. But I'm sure... Well, the vehicles in Alberta tend to be a little bit larger. Few more trucks out here than <laughs> you see in Ontario. So, um, if anything, you might not be seen just because there's a lifted pickup that's uh, that you're just not visible to. Um, but um, you can hear them coming, so it's not always a surprise. <laughs> yeah, Toronto is a bit of a yeah. I mean, I think actually, what I will say is that overall, my experience with drivers in COVID times has been. Uh, and I think I mentioned it on previous episodes, has been very positive. I think people are, people driving motorists are much more aware of cyclists than they have been in, in past years and months. Uh, again, that's just my experience. I've had fewer, you know, altercations with drivers um, when I'm riding my bike. And that's, I think that's partially because there are so many more cyclists out now than there used to be. 
um, partially because there are fewer cars or there were for a long time than there used to be. But I think it's a it's definitely a positive. I think overall the city is 100% heading in the right direction with cycling infrastructure. Um, and uh, just like you, I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm I'm wondering I'm wondering if there's a better way from a yeah from that infrastructure perspective to do this to do what they did on the Danforth. If nothing else, it's good to at least start the conversation. So maybe we don't have the answers, but maybe and maybe no one in particular has the answers. But at least starting the discussion is enough to elicit that response that that we're looking for as a community, yeah. as as a larger group. So yeah. I think it's it's good that people are talking about it now. I think so too. All right, uh, want to do another uh, one eighty, two seventy? What are we doing here? <laughs> I've lost. I can't count that high. So <laughs> deal. We'll make another uh, turn. We'll make another turn. But we're sticking to cycling. Um, so we had a, a listener comment uh, from Pierre, who is actually a, a product manager at uh, Look Cycle in France. So someone who uh, definitely knows his bikes. Um, and the comment was about an episode we did. Uh, with uh, Corey of Cognoscenti, who is the wheel builder. And um, Pierre um, gave us some kudos on the quality of the podcast. So thank you very much for that. Um, but he also said that some of the some of the information presented in that episode was not factual. And um, I'll, I'll point out one one issue that he took, which I think bears diving into in the kind of in the spirit of being factual and, and getting things right. I think it's worth uh, it's worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where Corey talked about um, liking the fact that um, Sapim um, X-ray or CX-ray spokes, the, fl- the flattened spokes, uh, make for stiffer wheels. And it's because uh, of how they interact with one another where they cross uh, because the sections are flattened and so there's more surface area for at that contact point and um and pierre was was referencing some some work suggesting that that makes no difference whatsoever and it's the it's purely the the uh young's modulus or the stiffness of the material intention of the spoke uh that makes for stiffer wheels not the not their cross section at the at the point where they um where they overlap where they interlace so kind of uh you know if you're if you're into wheels this is a big deal point um if you're just into riding wheels this is maybe not a not a huge deal but as i said we're you know we want to make sure that we're presenting accurate information so this is a correction that we are putting out there yeah, and I, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that, not being a wheel builder. <laughs> um, I am an engineer, but uh, fluid dynamics, so <laughs> slightly different. Yeah. Pierre, thank you very much for writing in and for, for all the kind words. And actually, um, you know, once once Pierre sent me this comment, we started talking and he uh, he had a lot to say about about aerodynamics and uh, and tools for aerodynamic analysis. And so we're, um, we're going to be... I'm I'm going to be playing with a new um, a new tool in the, in the coming weeks, which I'll talk to you guys about later, because uh, it's gonna you know it fits very nicely in our in our aero nerd dumb conversations, uh, and that's all that's all thanks to Pierre because he introduced it to me. But uh, that's all I will say about it for now. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. All right, and I think we have one more listener question that you wanted to follow up on, correct? Yes, and um, 
So this is a this is an old question. So it was asked quite some time ago, but in my defense, I answered the listener directly a long time ago. We just haven't had a, an opportunity to put it on the air, but it's a good one. So uh, I do want to talk about it. And this comes from uh, Joe Rossi, who is a an athlete that I used to work with. Um, I've worked with for I think three years before COVID. Um, and he has been really digging in fairly deeply into uh, heart rate variability uh, and HRV for trainings uh, platform specifically. And as you'll recall, listeners, we had Marco Altini, who was the um, the creator of HRV for training on in a past episode. So uh, when Joe posted this question, I, of course, asked Marco. Marco got back to me. And so I have the the full report now that's uh, that's ready to go. And the question is very topical uh, in pandemic times, and I'll explain why. So what Joe asks is, I'll, I'll read directly from his question. The HRV number I got from measurements at the beginning of last year, can I measure them against readings that I'm getting today? So if today is a 7 and a reading from last year was a 10, can I assume that there's still correlation or that... And, and that just means that I'm a little bit more stressed today than I was a year ago. So for those of you listeners who are um, not familiar with heart rate variability, just go listen to that episode because it's amazing with Marco Altini. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes because I can't remember what number of episode that was off the top of my head, but uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. The important thing to understand here is that the, the app that you use, uh, HRV for training, gives you a daily score that is... Um, that is based on your normalized HRV value, but it's it's not your uh, you know a root mean square value of your heart rate variability. It's just a numeric score uh, that I think ranges from well, I don't even know what the range is, but certainly from zero to I think the highest I've ever seen for me has been like ten and a half. So um, a higher a higher score means a lower heart rate, no, sorry, a higher heart rate variability, which is generally, you know, correlated with uh, a more relaxed state and a lower score is is the opposite. So when uh, Joe says that today he's getting a seven and last year he was getting a 10, what you could try to conclude from that is that, you know, last year he was more relaxed than he is this year. Um, so I spoke to Marco about this and uh, I had a hunch, but I wanted to get the, the, real accurate response on the, on the, on the matter. And, um, Marco basically confirmed my hunch that you cannot compare readings that are that far apart. Um, and that's because a lot of things change within, within a year and heart rate variability, because it looks at the state of the autonomic nervous system, it takes sort of takes a lot of things into account. And, um, one of those things of course now is this pandemic (laughs) and, uh, for, for many of us, that has meant quite dramatic changes. Uh, some are, you know, positive. Some are negative, and they will undoubtedly have, at least on most of us, some effect on that autonomic nervous system and our, as a result, our HRV readings. And so, the other thing that Marco said, well, reminded me of, is that what you're looking for most of the time is a is a fairly stable. HRV reading. So a bigger number isn't better than a smaller number or vice versa. A stable number is what you want. So if you're getting, you know, sevens, you kind of want to be around sevens. If you're used to getting sevens and all of a sudden you're getting fives, that's a problem. If you're using, if you're used to getting sevens and all of a sudden you're getting tens, that could be a problem. So what you're, what you want to compare to is what is normal for you in the last little bit. 
So then Marco went on to define last little bit uh, as around 60 days. So your the way that the way that they they've created their algorithms for you know things like daily advice and and training status and kind of adaptation status is they'll look at the broader average and that broader average is a 60 day moving average and then they'll compare it to their to your more acute 7 day moving average and that's how they make their um you know, not predictions, but that's how they diagnose the state of your autonomic nervous system. Um, and so given that that broader average is a, is a 60 day average, comparing your values from today to your values from a year ago, doesn't give you very much insight, if any at all. And I think the other point there too, is that comparing from person to person wouldn't necessarily give you much insight totally. either. 100%. Um, because I was listening to you talk about uh, the the example from Joe going from seven to ten, or yourself being ten and a half, and like the highest I've ever seen is six point five. So mm. the the first thought was like, oh, I must be really stressed out. And while I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that statement, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's maybe not as clear cut as it would seem because my body's different than your body, and I would have a totally. different uh, a different amount of like baseline heart rate variability. Um, just like my maximum heart rate's different, um, so things like that, it's you can't compare directly. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you brought up the example I was going to bring up that 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 heart rate. Um, it's funny how I uh, like there's when I was running a studio, this happened a lot. People would compare each other's heart rates because everybody could see each other's screen, and I was like, "Well, you're working really hard, and your heart rate's really low. You must be super fit." I'm like, no, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it means that you know you have your your heart rate if you choose to you know define zones or at least points on your heart rate you know your 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 heart rate progression where you know maybe this is your threshold and this is your max and maybe this is your lower threshold um those are relevant to you and you alone um and if someone has uh, a genetically lower heart rate or genetically higher heart rate it means next to nothing compared to the next person beside them yeah um yeah that's Great example. Uh, the the one thought I have there is that uh, when you are comparing your own progression of heart rate for a, a known wattage under a known set of conditions, that's something that you can probably compare time to time just to get a yes. rough idea of what you're doing. But yes, uh, absolutely. There are, there are a lot of external factors as well, like hydration, amount of sleep, fatigue, things like that, that can come into play. So I know just to give an example, um, I know when I'm doing warm-ups on workouts, when I'm at 190 to 200 watts, um, specifically on the trainer, because it's much easier to keep that, uh, that narrow range all like on a good day, I'll be as low as 130. Um, but when I'm tired or feeling weak, uh, my heart rate can be as high as 140 or 145 for that same wattage. So that's quite a range there. And I get a good idea of how well the workout's going to go based on that, that warm up period where I'm getting into that at that wattage. So, um, yeah, I, I use that as a little barometer for my own level of fitness or level of fatigue. But um, aside from that, you can't. I couldn't compare to your heart rate, Michael, and say, "Oh, you're mm -hmm. you know X number. You're at 120, therefore you're in much better shape, or you're at 160, you're in worse shape." Yeah, my my. So, for instance, my heart rate is probably. 10 to 12 beats lower than yours naturally. And that, you know, we ride, we're actually probably on the bike very similar, you know, based on our, like our, our performance metrics, your mm -hmm. watts per kg is better now because you've, <laughs> you've lost all this weight and I have not. Um, but in terms of like, you know, straight up numbers, we're probably very similar, but my heart rate, I just have a, a slightly lower heart rate and that's 
probably mostly genetic and it has nothing to do with fitness, nothing to do with my ability to sustain it. It's just, it's completely individual. And you bring up a really good point about using it as a barometer. Um, and a hundred, we're totally off topic now and a hundred percent, it can be done. Um, you just have to do, you do really have to be very careful with context. Um, and you brought up, you know, hydration, uh, stimulant status, caffeine, a hundred percent sleep. Um, one thing I like, I really find that works very well is it's, it's an early warning system of getting a cold or getting sick. Um, when your heart rate at easy intensities at kind of like LT, LT one and below, uh, when your heart rate is higher than you would expect, that is a sign that you're something's going on, right? Like that's kind of like the, the, the pet phrase that I use. And if everything else is like you're hydrated, you slept okay. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting sign that you could, it's a possible sign that you could be getting sick or if you're recovering from a, from a, some kind of mild respiratory thing, hopefully not COVID, um, is a sign that you're not quite there yet. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be training, right? Um, and you know, we can talk about that. That's a whole separate conversation, but it's a sign that, that you're, you're still, you know, your, your body's still doing stuff, you know, that isn't turning your legs in a circle. Yeah. Your body is usually working behind your back with something. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there's just not always open lines of communication. <laughs> Very true. All right. Um, let's do one more thing. Cause I think we got time for one more, uh, one more, I don't know. What would you call this pant leg? <laughs> I think we've, <laughs> yeah, de- we've destroyed that metaphor. <laughs> if you're an octopus. Yeah. Um, so we we've wanted to introduce another little segment of uh, something new that you're you know that you've used or tried, and Andrew's got a fun one to talk about. Yeah. So what uh, what I have done recently as a function of work is um, well, Four Eyes has a sponsorship with ISN um, Israel Startup Nation, and they have recently signed on uh, two fairly big riders. Um, one being a little larger internationally, uh, Chris Froome. So I would say most listeners have probably heard his name. Uh, Michael Woods is the other exciting one for us as, as Canadians. We're in huge support of him. But uh, Chris Froome is the really important one in this context because he is known to ride non-round chain rings. And we basically said we need to validate that uh, the particular brand he uses, Osymmetric, uh, and it's they're actually a brand that I have used in the past myself, um, not on a four eyes power meter though, because it was an older FSA crank set I was using. But um, we we wanted to make sure that when he gets his hands or legs on this power meter, <laughs> um, that it's accurate and that it shows the responses that uh, that we expect. So we've got a pretty good baseline because I ride the power meter and the flight trainer together all the time, and they're very consistent with each other. Nice. Um, so it's it's set up basically for validation in that sense. And that's why I do a lot of this, just to try and get as many comparison points as we can in more real world measurement conditions. Because yeah, you can go out and ride on the road, but what's your baseline there? Unless you have pedals or a power cap hub. Yeah. Two power so, Yeah, there's, there are other ways to do it, but... Uh, yeah, this is the chosen way, and it fits in with my indoor training quite well. So. <laughs> right, because I'm afraid of roads. The I was having uh, panic sweats when you were talking about the bike lanes. Just thinking of that. <laughs> so, oh man. Um, but yes, the uh, the osymmetric chain rings. Um, I actually before this podcast, I was struggling to get them installed just because it takes a whole bunch of derailleur adjustments. Um, but they're they're very interesting in the theory and how they work, where 
they have their widest point that you're acting on the chain, uh, which it occurs basically at the horizontal pedal position. And the theory is that you have the most leverage and the most strength at this point. And then when you're going over the top or the bottom of the pedal stroke, um, that's when it has an effectively smaller chain ring diameter so that you're getting less leverage. So there was, um, there was another company in the 80s that did this. Uh, it was like Bio Rings or something like that. They were short-lived, but biopace rings. I think yes, is what they yeah, were that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, they did the opposite, where they had the the cam shape rotated basically ninety degrees to what Osmetric and Pure, Yeah, uh, it was it was a good idea with the poor execution. I think. Okay. <laughs> um, so they didn't last too long, from what I understand. Um, I was quite young at the time, and obviously had no idea what was going on with cycling. But uh, it's it's been interesting because people have been very outspoken the people who like these love them and other people just think they're kind of weird and i will admit they feel super weird when you get on them hmm. but having ridden in the past um some of my highest power numbers which you know there is that argument like does it make the power meter less effective um or less accurate but uh some of my highest power numbers and some of my best races have been on osmetric chain rings and the the best races point of view I think is more uh, more objective because it's actually a speed that I'm correlating to. So um, the only time that I've been able to sustain over 40 kilometers an hour in a half iron distance race. Um, so that was well, it was a relay, so I didn't have to run afterwards. <laughs> <I'm just laughs> That's putting a that footnote on there. Uh, but yeah, it was um, that was like my best race performances occurred with them. And uh, I'm just in the process of swapping back, but um, the the accuracy side of things is what I really want to address with this. And as far as we believe, and we're in the process of validating this, but there should be no change in accuracy because we measure we measure the torque that's acting on the crank arm, and that's independent of which whatever diameter chain ring you have. Mm-hmm. So if the torque going in is, I don't know, 20 Newton meters, just as a number, uh, and you're rotating at a certain RPM, that will give you a certain power. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people have asked, like, do I need to recalibrate for different size chain rings? Do I need to do this, that? And the answer is no. Like, it's it's basically set up so that uh, the physics, like the way we're measuring, everything that happens downstream of the crank arm is... Yeah, it doesn't matter. Exactly. So yeah, you're capturing the data before before you 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 fuck with it with yeah. with other other things. Exactly. Like yeah. Dirty dirty chains and things. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not capturing the effects of uh, poor maintenance, but yeah. um, the the one thing that could throw a wrench in the works here is that if you are measuring for a given um, basically a given RPM, that instantaneous RPM is changing because you've got this different gear ratio that dynamically happens through the pedal stroke. So if you, if you're going at a fixed speed and you're pedaling, you will always like your, your RPM will be very consistent throughout the the pedal stroke because you're not accelerating or decelerating your own mass significantly. Uh, With the osymmetric chain rings or with any other non-round chain ring, you are getting that different effective gear ratio for part of the pedal stroke. So the total number of teeth in a single revolution that will define the time it takes to get around to that point. But you might be moving your legs slightly faster when the diameter is smaller and slightly slower when the diameter is larger. And that's the whole point of them. Right. But um, yeah, we, we being four eyes, we take a very large number of measurements throughout the pedal stroke. 
uh, and we take a large number of um, RPM measurements as well as the torque measurements and combine all of that to get an, basically an average power throughout the, the pedal. Um, because the, the argument that we have is basically what, what does it really matter if you're capturing the power of just the portion of the downstroke? Like you could be doing 3000 Watts for, yeah, who cares? Yeah. For 5% of the turn, because that's just like the highest part of the, the loading. But really if you do a full revolution of the crank, that's, it's that power that matters, not at a given time, what is your instantaneous power? No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I'm going through the testing right now, and it's cool because I'm finally getting to put the osymmetric chain rings back on because I really like them. Um, and it's going to be neat to play around with the trainer because uh, the flight trainer is based on having a constant wheel speed. So this <laughs> this might actually be interesting uh, as a physics test just oh, to see right. like what happens to it because um, it may react well uh, because it's trying to maintain that constant speed. So it might actually modulate torque to make it feel more like a round chain ring, which would be super interesting uh, and just a weird <sighs> coincidence. So but that would mess you up when you're out on the road, right? Because then it, then you would have those fluctu- <laughs> at, at, at like a steady speed. You would have fluctuations in RPM essentially, like you want twice through the pedal stroke. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we'll see what happens. I I don't I can't huh. accurately predict what's going to happen there. Um, I need to get my derailleur fixed first, but, uh, so yeah, then, the, so then are you sure that you're getting an accurate second reading from the flight? If you're not sure how well it's going to respond to the, to the osymmetric? Well, once again, we're taking the average of the instantaneous power measurements. So we get the, we get a very accurate wheel speed from the flight measurement because we measure every spoke that's going by. So it's like having an encoder okay. on the wheel and we're measuring mm-hmm. the right, right. force from the resistance unit instantaneously okay. as well so we're, we're taking yeah, that so measurement you're still getting like, those yeah you're still getting those two components those two key like omega and, yeah, and torque exactly yeah. yeah so we're we're getting i think 80 hertz for our uh at least maybe 100 hertz for our tor- um the yeah the torque measurements and close to that whatever the the blade pass or the spoke pass frequency is is the highest resolution we can do there for wheel speed sure. but uh, it ends up being pretty quick if you're doing five revolutions per second and you've got 30 spokes that's that's at least 100 hertz so um yeah it's it's going to be a neat change but uh i do like the chain rings um the science data supporting their claims i've seen contradicting arguments saying oh, I, I still want to know if this makes sense yeah. like i wonder i mean like I have no listening listeners. This is this is where I say this is my like complete guess, and I'm not basing this on any any reality or any research. But I suspect that like your body's really good at adapting to stuff. Mm-hmm. You know that like you you know if you've if you've I, I suspect it's almost like it's not confirmation bias because that's not the right term for it. But it's almost like you're good at what you're trained to do. So if you're if you've trained yourself on an osymmetric ring and then you jump on a round ring, you're like, oh, this is garbage. I hate it. It's wrong. And then vice versa too. Um, that there's some adaptation period. Um, but yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I'd love for, for somebody to write in or we should find an expert who maybe isn't financially, you know, incentivized to, to voice one way or the other about this. Yeah. And honestly, the first setup I had, um, back with my old P2 before I got the Ventum, um, that had a round small ring and, a an oval large ring. Um, so I know when I'd switched to the small ring, uh, it was very interesting because it was, like it just the feel is yeah it just throws it off um and going back and forth was kind of a wonky experience not wonky in a bad way it's just your legs take a second but yeah really the adaptation mentally happens i would say within five seconds so it actually yeah yeah, it doesn't take that long 
Um, the the training stimulus, that's another question. Like if you train exclusively on a non-round chain ring and then swap over to a round chain ring, maybe that has a difference in how your muscles develop. Maybe yeah, not. Yeah, I could see that. But um, it's, it is an interesting thought. Um, so it's, yeah, very interesting. Like just bodies in general are fascinating. <laughs> and this is a, a very specific example of it. But uh, yeah, it's been a couple of years since I've written one and I'm excited to get back on it. Fun. Yeah, keep us posted. Absolutely. Um, listeners, I think this is good for, it's it's getting to be like definitely compression long johns at least here because <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> Are we going to get hate mail for all these? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I love Stop beating the dead horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so long as Pierre doesn't make fun of you for talking about 30 spoke wheels, because I don't think those exist in, in the wild. But Yeah, probably not. 28, 24. <laughs> yeah, 32, 36. Kind of coming those. Um, but that's very esoteric. Yeah, so I think this is a good place to wrap. Um, thank you very much for listening as always. Andrew, thank you for, for joining me and for uh, talking about the stuff. We always have these little bits and pieces that we that are too short to make a make into a full episode although probably some of your you know your dietary changes and then maybe even the conversation on the on the osymmetric rings could be a full episode especially if we got uh, an expert to help us flesh out the conversation but uh, it's always fun to talk about these things in in little bite-sized pieces absolutely and maybe this is a good time to actually put the call out that uh well, as we found out through Pierre's input, um, we do have some experts listening. And the nice thing is they don't feel the need to constantly write in and correct us, which is a good start. Um, but also, if there's anyone who has some experience with uh, dietary changes like that or the physiology around the osymmetric chain rings, I'd, I'd be super interested in hearing other opinions. I don't specifically know who to reach out for in that second one. But uh, if, if there is a listener who feels that they have an expert standing in the field i would be very keen to hear back yes likewise i agree so folks thank you very much for tuning in as always uh if you like the show do rate and review us uh it does help other folks find us uh an even better way to help other folks find us is to tell those folks uh <laughs> hopefully we've uh we've got information that's uh both useful and interesting and um you know, the more folks that listen to, I got to stop using that word. The more people that listen to our show, the, uh, the, the more, uh, you know, the, the, the more we can influence. That was completely nonsensical. I don't know where I was going. <laughs> Maybe you can censor <laughs> out the use of the time. word folks. Just have like a beep. <laughs> beep. The more beep uh, that listen to us. <laughs> let me try that one more time. Uh, and an even better way of, uh, of spreading the word is to tell your friends about the show, because that's probably the most reliable way of other people finding endurance innovation and uh, hopefully enjoying it as much as we enjoy making it and make sure you tell them at a, a socially acceptable distance no close talking 